I'm Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm just, man, it is such a blessing and a gift from the Lord that we get to gather together and dig into this word, uh, the very words of God to us. And so I just invite you to just bow your heads and pray with me um, as we enter into this time. Father, we, we come to you this morning just grateful uh, that we're able to be here, God, and um, Lord, I pray that you would use this time to make us more like Jesus, to, to lead us to, to trust in you more, to, to just taste and see your goodness. You might speak your words. Fill all of us, including myself, with just your spirit, that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see. God, so that we might hear your word. And not just be hearers of the word only, but that we would be doers of the word. When we leave this place, that we would live a life that looks more like Jesus than when we first walked in. I pray all of this in his amazing name. Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's one of those uh, questions that uh, parents love to ask their kids, that, uh, that we love to ask little kids. And, um, and so I love right now in this season with a five-year-old and a three-year-old asking them what they want to be when they grow up. Um, it's just uh, one of those fun questions, but it's actually just kind of become this consistent answer lately for um, our middle child. It's kind of one of those classic boy answers of, I want to be a firefighter. All right. And uh, his, Wyatt is his name and day tomorrow. So he had, uh, he had his birthday party yesterday and Boone County Fire Department came out with one of their big fire trucks and, and got all their gear out and he got to sit in there and he was wearing his own little like fireman jacket and fireman hat and for some reason he always wants to wear it backwards. I don't know why, but he does. Um, and uh, he just, he, he was on top of the world yesterday. Just like a smile never left his face. It was just like, uh, it was just one of those things where like, as a parent, it's like, yes, I'm so glad he felt so special. Um, anyway, um, I get off that uh, aspect, but he, he just wants to be a firefighter, all right? Um, and then our oldest son, Hudson, uh, has a super realistic dream uh, relative to Dwight. He, at preschool graduation, got up there, and they had all of them come up with a microphone and say, I want to be, and he says, I want to be a superhero. It's like, all right, uh, that's awesome aspirations, buddy. Um, but we are not well off enough that if we die, you can become Bruce Wayne. I'm sorry, bud. Um, so uh, he's going to have to figure that one out. But um, it, it starts out as this cute question we ask kids, and they come up with funny things like, I want to be a superhero. Um, and, but that question can very easily, over time in our lives, turn into this overwhelming kind of anxiety-producing interrogation that comes at you from all kinds of directions, whether it's your, your grandmother and, or uncle at Thanksgiving, or um, it's when you show up to college campus and everyone's asking you, what's your major? What do you want to do? What do you want to be? All of those kinds of things. And you're like, I don't know. I'm majoring in psychology and like, still trying to like, figure things out, and who knows what I can do with that. I majored in psychology. I can say it, all right? So, um, but... Uh, it does. It becomes this like anxiety-inducing thing because it's really just the tip of the iceberg of like this bigger an anxious pursuit that our culture has, which is this anxious pursuit of self, anxious pursuit of, of our identity, of answering that question, who am I? And it's a question that has been asked throughout history, right? But, but for whatever reason, like in our culture today, this who am I thing is... It's just this anxious pursuit. And it's because, in part, identity is a big deal. 
right? Our identity impacts how we relate to others. If, our, if, I, if I find my identity in how like, other people perceive me, it's going to affect how I relate to them. And I'm going to put on different kinds of masks with different kinds of people and, like, it, and, and make sure that I don't like, kind of cross any sort of, um, you know, that, what Matt talked about last week, the contractual kind of bounds of what it means to be on, in, in a certain group. Our identity impacts how we relate to others. It also impacts and gives us purpose. When we have an answer to who I am, like in part, the, what we're, why we're searching for the answer to that question is because we're longing for a purpose. Part of how God's wired us is to, to have a purpose. So our identity gives us purpose, it impacts how we relate to others, but it also defines our value and our worth. How we perceive our value and our worth and, and where our value and worth lies. So where do we find our identity? Like it, it is a really important thing. Like there's, there's a good reason our culture is trying to answer this question, but our culture looks in all the wrong places for it. And our culture tends to look in, in one specific kind of place. And what um, is kind of underlying our culture's pursuit of the question, who am I, is this philosophical idea called expressive individualism. All right? And basically what that means is that our culture is just, and everything we swim in is promoting this idea that our true identity is found in expressing our feelings and desires. Our, our true identity is found in expressing our feelings and desires. Therefore, and that's because our feelings and desires are ultimate. Like that's really who we are. And so you hear slogans like, you be you. It means be true to your desires because that's the real you. Be true to your feelings because that's who you really are. In other words, our culture's perspective to answering the who am I question is this. Our desires direct us to our identity. Our desires direct us to our identity. And then that's who we are. Just kind of whatever we desire, that's our identity. But what do we do when those desires lead us down this destructive path? When a, a desire for comfort or to escape some kind of anxiety leads us to, to things like alcohol and we become an alcoholic and that's our identity. Is that, then what do we do with that? Is it just you be you? How often are our desires at odds with what we believe about ourselves even? And what we hope to be true about ourselves, but our desires are at odds with that. What do we do when we have conflicting desires or we're just not sure what we feel or desire in a certain moment. I mean, look, the, the heart is a confusing thing, right? And how often are we disappointed when our desires are finally met? When what we think we've been finding our identity in is finally fulfilled, we're left very unsatisfied. And when we finally reach that achievement, when we finally, like, graduate, when we finally get that career start that we wanted, when we finally have a family, when we finally, whatever it may be for you, if our desires direct us to our true identity and then our desires don't fulfill us when they're met, what do we do with that? See, cultural perspective is, is lacking somehow. And that's where we come to this text today and we recognize that, that Peter, through Peter, God is pointing us to something more hopeful, to something more sure, 
a steadier foundation, something that's actually life-giving, that, can, that actually flows from the very source of life, that we can count on. And so while our culture says our desires direct us to our true identity, Peter argues that our identity should direct our desires. Our identity should direct our desires. So rather than identity flowing from desires, desires should be flowing from identity and be directed by that. Now I know that may raise some flags for some of you as you, you think, I mean it certainly would in our greater culture, but this idea that we direct our desires, I mean the, the culture around us is saying, no, we don't direct our desires, it's who we are. So I just want to put a pin in that objective, all right, or objection. We're going to come back to it, okay? So just hold on to it. We'll come back to that objection of just, we don't direct our desires. What are you talking about? Like Peter must be wrong. But we'll come back to it. Because our goal this morning um, and the rest of the morning is uh, really the goal of our text in this. It's the, the call to embrace our life-giving identity in Jesus. Embrace our life-giving identity in Jesus and then direct our desires toward him. Direct our desires towards him. What we're going to see are two things. We're going to see, and this is kind of the order we'll take it in, the, the true life-giving answer to the identity question of who am I. We're going to see that. And then we're going to look at, well, what's the path to embody that identity? What's the path to embody it more and more so that we experience more and more of that abundant life that comes along with that identity. In other words, how do we grow to live authentically in line with our identity that we have in Jesus? So I want to reread 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3, because these three verses are absolutely key. Everything really hinges on these three verses um, and what we're talking about. So let's look at this text, remind ourselves what Peter's getting at here. He says, so put away all malice and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. And like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. The central idea of this text is one command. One command, right? You see, you see a few other things that, that look like commands in our English translations, but in the reality, the, the one command here is to long. Long for pure spiritual milk. Or in other words, direct our desires towards that pure spiritual milk. And we'll get down to what that is in a minute, but, but we're talking about the identity right now. Because here's the thing. Peter roots this command to long for pure spiritual milk in identity. And he does it all over the place throughout this text. All right, he roots that, that command in our identity. We see it first in that, that short little word at the beginning, so. So it's pointing us back to, to what just came before it. And, and really, it's pointing us back to the beginning of verse 23 in chapter 1, which says, since you have been born again. So no way to, to read it is to say, since you've been born again, put away all these things and long for pure spiritual milk. So it points us back. I mean, there's tons of implications of this idea of being born again. And we see it here in earlier in 1 Peter, the past several weeks. We, we see it when Jesus talks about it in John chapter 3. There's tons of, of implications from a, a, we're gifted with a hope of everlasting life to, to transforming how we live our life. But ultimately, 
uh, what we're looking at here when we're talking about this text specifically and the implications for being born again is that we, when we're born again, we have a, life, or a life-giving transformation of who we are, of our identity. I mean, think about it. Being born physically uh, comes with you're being born into a physical family and that family will shape your identity in so many ways. One, I mean, the very first thing they do is give you a name, right? And that shapes your identity. Like, that's part of your identity. It's part of your, your name is important, all right? It, it shapes how you relate to others. Like, the way you grow up in your home, for good or ill, shapes how you relate to others, right? Like, if you're in a home that fights or always, like, screaming matches with one another, like, when you get married, like, that's probably going to be your default, right? It's shaped how you relate to others, and it's because it's shaping your identity. Um, and then the, the worth we feel is shaped by our family, for good or for ill. If you, you live in a loving home that expresses that love, then you likely feel a more secure um, identity and, and worth. But if you don't live in that kind of home, then, then you're, unlike, or you're less likely to feel secure. But in a much greater way, in a much more significant way, being born again spiritually has those same kinds of implications where, where we're given a, a new identity as a whole. And we need that new identity. We need a new identity that is, is in something lasting and life-giving. Because on our own, even in the best case scenario, our attempts to find our own identity will always be lacking because they aren't rooted in something that lasts. If we go back to just the end of First uh, Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 23, since you've been born again, how? Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. So being born again, you're, you're born into an identity that's lasting, imperishable, right? Implying that before that, we, like, you were, your identity was rooted in something that was perishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. See, everything about us is transient, is passing, is, is changing, is fading away. And we have no life in and of itself. Even the air we breathe like is a gift from the Lord. And we try to define our identity on our own. But it can't provide anything lasting. It can't provide a sure foundation that lasts. Beyond the, and through the ups and downs and the changing dynamics of our life. And we'll always be lacking when we try to find our identity on our own and ourselves. But that, and, that's, and that's actually what breaks down our relationship with God in the first place, that we would try to find our identity on our own. Adam and Eve, in, in Genesis chapter 3, they had been communing with God, walking perfectly with him. They knew they were his, and there was, like, there was perfection in the world. But then, um, rather than continuing to, to define their identity as his, they chose to go their own way. They chose to, to disobey God. They chose to be their own king and queen. Rather than following God's way, they wanted to make their own way. They wanted to define themselves and become like God themselves, find their own identity. And so that's really what's at the, the root of the fall, the root of sin that separates us from God is because we are trying 
as best as possible to find our identity, who we are apart from him. But when we do that, it's rooted in what's perishable. It's rooted in what's like the grass that's fading and withering away. But in the good news of the gospel, redefining our identity is central. That's why this idea of being born again is is so key. Because it's central in Jesus' gift of redemption to us. And and in chapter 2, verse 4, it says, As you come to him, and once again, just kind of like that so is pointing uh, back to being born again, this is pointing us um, as well to the fact that um, our longings need to be rooted in our identities. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen your pres- uh, and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up. So the good news of Jesus is that he lived the life that we couldn't live. That he perfectly found his identity in God and walked in that identity. And, and he made a way so that we, by dying on the cross, that we could come back into relationship with God and find our identity in something that lasts once again. But what is that life, life-giving identity? Like, as you come to him, you yourselves are being built up. How? Like, how are we transformed? How is our identity transformed? Well, we see it as we continue on in those verses and in the rest of the text. It says you are being built up as a spiritual house is the first image we see. And it's this idea of household, right? And it's, it's pointing in part back to the temple, but in part back to this idea that we are God's people and that we are being built up as his family. And if, we don't, if you're not able to see it there, we can, we can jump down to verse 9 and see that we're called several things. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. That's the ultimate thing about our identity. In Jesus, we are God's people. And it's free for anyone to enter into that kind of relationship with God. It's free, like, because of what Jesus did in living the perfect life, dying the death that we deserve, and rising from the dead to prove that all of that mattered and we was victorious over our sin and our death, we can enter into that kind of relationship with God and be given this identity, this life-giving identity of being God's people. Well, let's unpack that a little bit because it's like just saying in Jesus we are God's people doesn't quite give us the full picture of how amazing that is. And so let's just break it down. First off, when we talked about identity earlier, we said it, it defines our value and worth, it impacts how we relate to others, it gives us purpose. So how does this identity give us life-giving purpose, that we are God's people when we're in Jesus? Our identity defines our value and worth. As God's people, we're chosen. Verse 9, you are a chosen race. You're a, it says a holy nation, and this idea of holiness is that we're set apart for God. And then the next one, a people for his own possession. In some translations, it translates it as you are his treasured possession. And so the God of the universe cho- chooses us, sets us apart for himself. He treasures us. He cherishes us, you and me, in Jesus. And it's a secure thing. It's not, it's not this back and forth like, oh, we, we're kind of 
in God's people if we're like doing good and we're out of God's people if we're doing bad. No, like Jesus was perfect for us so that when we're in him, like our day-to-day like, you know, um, kind of like check mark of like, are we doing well or not? Like is not what keeps us in or out secure in the love of God or treasured by God or not. It's we are always treasured by God in Jesus because God treasures Jesus. And it's secure. Like our worth in the Lord is far greater than anything we could possibly think or imagine. And it's not contingent on our performance. It's not contingent on what other people think. It's all contingent on Jesus. And that's amazing news. Our identity also gives us purpose, though. It not only gives us our worth, it gives us purpose. Right? And so as we, we break this down, what we see in this passage in, in 9 through 12 is that, that we are given, as God's people, we could break that identity down even further into it, because it changes the way we relate to people um, into three things. We're worshipers of God. We've, we've changed how we relate to God as God's people. We no longer relate to him as, as an enemy of God, but rather a worshiper of God, someone who... who um, who proclaims the excellencies of him who called them out of darkness and into marvelous light. We relate to him as, as people who enjoy him, who've tasted and seen that he is good, who, who rejoice in him. And so it gives us purpose, one great purpose that defines everything we do, and that's worship of God, enjoyment of him. But then it also changes how we relate with one another in Jesus. For those of us that have come to faith in Christ, and like we're We are God's people, and we've been made not only sons and daughters of the king, but also brothers and sisters with one another, to where we're to love one another full of grace and truth. Love one another full of grace and truth, just like Jesus was full of grace and truth towards us. And so we're family with one another. But then we're also missionaries to the world, and we see that in verses 11 and 12. Peter continues on and he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So our identity gives us purposes as we relate to the people around us in the world that don't yet know Jesus, that we're to live in such a way that we represent Jesus to the watching world, that they would be able to see his love and his truth and his grace. They would be able to both see it and hear it from us. And so we're missionaries. Jesus is ambassadors to the world. It gives us purpose as we worship God, we love one another, and we reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our identity gives us worth, it gives us purpose, and it impacts how we relate to others as we just teased out in those identities as worshipers, family, and missionaries. And, and the amazing news is that you don't have to get your life together in order to enter into that identity. Like you don't have to direct your desires toward that identity in order to become that. But no, it's Jesus, Jesus did all the work for us because we would never do the work on our own. He lived the perfect life. He died the death that we deserved because of running from God as his enemies. And then he rose from the dead so that we could have a life-giving identity. And all we've got to do is to turn from trying to define ourselves apart from God 
turn from trying to do things our own way, turn from trying to, to, to satisfy ourselves, turn from trying to find affirmation on our own, and, and trust in Jesus. Trust that we find our affirmation, our identity, and, and satisfaction, and life from the one source of life. And you can have that today, right there where you're sitting, before I'm even done talking this morning. Just go to him and say, that's what I want, Jesus. That's what I want. Turn and trust. Come to him, as it says in verse 4. And you have all of this that we're talking about. It's yours. And as believers that have come to him, church, we, we have these things. They're secure. This identity doesn't, you know, fade away like the flower of the grass, but it's secure just like the word of God is secure. We are his people. We are born again. We can't change our family anymore. Praise God. But when you're born, there's still growing up to do, right? There's still this becoming and, and embodying the fullness of that identity. And so how, what's the path to get there? Like what's the path to embody that, the fullness of being God's people, of being worshipers, of being family, of being missionaries? Well, it's this, is that we would direct our desires toward Jesus and his goodness. It's then that we'll grow up. I mean, look at verse 2. Like newborn infants, long for, or in other words, direct your desires toward the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, that by it you may grow up into the abundance of life that Jesus provides, that you might grow up into being like Jesus as worshipers, family, and missionaries. It says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So direct your desires towards Jesus and his goodness. The command here is this idea of longing for pure spiritual milk, which refers to, I mean, it really is the goodness of God and the good news of the gospel about Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. It is it's why we're, we're saying it's direct your desires towards Jesus and his goodness because that's the essence of that pure spiritual milk. It's just him. Direct your desires to him. It's not overly complicated is what Peter's getting at. Just long for it, just like an infant longs for, for, for physical milk, that we would long for Jesus in that same way. You've got to realize that's a powerful image that Peter brings up. Like a newborn infant. And so this longing is not just something that, like, you want a cookie, and it's this passing craving that happens, and it comes and goes from time to time. If, um, you know, you like cookies more than others, then maybe it comes and goes often, but, but it's just a passing kind of craving, right? Instead, it's, it's like a newborn craves for milk. And let's know there's a whole lot of college service or students in this service this morning. Let's just talk about newborns for a second, all right? Um, here's a few things in case you don't know anything about newborns. Um, first off, um, they do basically three things, all right? They sleep, but not very much, all right? They do sleep, um, but not nearly enough. That's why um, if you run into um, many of the parents here that have just had newborns, you will see bloodshot eyes um, often, all right? Um, I'm lucky, like our newborn, it, like the last three or four nights has just decided to only get up once, which is just a blessing from the Lord. But infants just, like they don't sleep very much. I get an amen from parents, I think, here, right? Um, but they, so they don't sleep very much. They poop a lot, all right? But then the other thing is they eat 
and they eat and they eat and they eat all the time. That's what they do. Like, that's their job, right? It's just to eat and sleep and poop. But, like, they, they, they long to eat so much because they're growing so much. Like, their only job is to grow. <laughs> that's the only thing they need to be doing is growing and growing in a healthy way. And so their desire and their longing for milk is, is regular. Like, it is, they, are, they want it consistently. Like, sometimes it's a little more often than others, but it is just always present. And then it's intense. It's an intense longing that, that results in making it very evident of what they want. All right, I don't know if you've heard a newborn scream. It's not pleasant, all right? But they make it evident what they want and what they desire. Because it's, it's based on like just a deep, innate, ingrained thing in them that recognizes their need for milk. And that's the kind of longing we're called to have. A regular longing, an intense longing, an evident longing, a longing that would be not, hopefully you're not doing too much like screaming at people about Jesus, all right? But, but that you would be talking about him, that like you would desire him so much and, and it would be some, some, you would enjoy Jesus and his goodness so much that you would be talking about him. Just like we talk about our sports teams or whatever else we're into, Right? That we would talk about Jesus in such a way it would be evident, just like a newborn's desire for milk is very evident in what they vocalize. But here's where I want to come back to that objection that we put a pen in earlier. Because a culture would argue we can't direct our desires. We can't stir up our desires like that. Like we can't just start like grin and bear it and like I'm gonna I'm gonna want Jesus more. Like, it's just, as they say, that's like, that's not how it works, right? Our desires direct us. Like, we're just kind of victims of our desires. And here's the thing. They're right. In many ways, they're right. It, just bear with me for a second. Our will, our desires, our hearts. Look, in Scripture, in Ezekiel 36, 26, God describes our hearts as stone. The center of our will, the center of our desires, he describes as stone. Like, it's not moldable and shapeable. It's not movable. It's not sensitive to external forces, right? Our hearts are stone before we are in Jesus. Our hearts are what they are. Our desires are what they are. We don't mold and shape them on our own. We're insensitive and don't desire God, but rather we desire ourselves. That's the only orientation we have. And, and Romans 3.11 hits this home again. It says, no one seeks God. No one seeks God. St. Augustine described it this way. He said, he said before Jesus, before um, he came and did what he did and made it possible for us to go from a heart of stone to what we'll talk about here in a moment, this was our reality as human beings. We were not able not to sin. If you're an English teacher, I'm sorry, double negative. That's, he's a saint, all right? He can do it. Um, not able not to sin. Like, we have a heart of stone. Like, we're going to sin. We're going to pursue self. And also, like, we just don't direct our desires to something that we've never tasted or enjoyed in the first place, right? And that's what Peter's getting at in verse 3. If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. 
he's acknowledging there's a very real sense in which you will not long for this at all if you've never tasted the goodness of God at all. It's impossible. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. Jesus pursues us even though we will never seek him. He pursues us, and he gives us a new heart of flesh. When we are born again, when we turn and trust in him, the good news of the gospel is that, that we, our heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh, according to Ezekiel chapter 36. And John Bunyan captures it in just, a, I think, a marvelous way in this, this short poem. He says, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. The law doesn't give us what we need. The world doesn't give us what we need in order to direct our desires. The gospel calls us to something even greater. But it gives us also everything we need to actually do that. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. That's why Peter can say, long for Jesus and his goodness. And it is a command to direct our desires in light of our new identity. And yet we recognize that our desires aren't just flipped like a switch. Yes, we're given a new heart in a moment, but that heart still needs to be shaped. It still needs to be changed. It still needs to be directed over time to be more and more in line with that identity that we've been given in the new birth. And so we go from a, from a heart of stone that can't be molded and shaped, it, shaped, as Augustine would put it, not able not to sin, to a heart of flesh that is directable, that is, as Augustine would say, able not to sin. That doesn't mean we won't sin. There is a coming a day when Jesus comes back in which we won't sin anymore, period. We won't even be able to sin. But right now, because we have a heart of flesh, we're able not to sin, we're able to desire Jesus and to direct our hearts towards him. And so how do we do that? How do we direct our desires in light of the identity we've been given in Jesus? Well, similar to training our palate, right? Like if, if you, want to, um, you want to start liking something that, that you don't enjoy. Um, like for me, it was when I was working through the doctoral program at seminary and um, I just... I needed the caffeine that coffee could provide. And since it would look weird to hook myself up to an IV of caffeine, figured I've got to figure out how to drink coffee, even though I hate it. So um, I began with like tea and like lots of honey and then like slowly transitioned to less and less and then began to transition to, um, I, so I know people like pumpkin spice lattes, right? Um, that's the thing. But um, I love the gingerbread latte. All right, that was my gateway drug then uh, into coffee. But then like, um, I just decided one day, like, okay, now I've got to go to black um, because that much sugar is just not good for you all the time. And so um, slowly but surely just began to, like, appreciate the, the, the flavor of coffee. Um, and, and that's what we've got to do when it comes to the desire um, of directing our desires towards Jesus. We've got to approach it in a similar way. We've got to cleanse our palate of the things that would um, keep us from being able to appreciate the goodness of Jesus. And then we've got to cultivate a palate that longs for Jesus. And what's that look like? Well, we've got to ask ourselves, what do we consume that gets in the way of appreciating the goodness of God? Like, what's that, 
that sugar that keeps us, uh, gets in the way of us appreciating the, you know, they've got those like, uh, at a coffee shop, they've got like, oh, notes of like ap- apricot and peach and chocolate. And I like for the first like five years of drinking coffee, I thought they were crazy. It was like, I'm pretty sure they just put like random things on there. Um, but like there's, there came a point like where I began like, oh, like oh, I can kind of see that. Um, and, and so like the more and more you get removed from the sugar that masks those things and that keeps us from appreciating those notes, the more and more that you're able to appreciate the, the, the richness of what's there in coffee, right? And so in the same way, we've got to figure out like what is that sugar for us? Like what's getting in the way? And, and Peter gives us a really good filter for being able to see this. In, in chapter 2, verse 1, which seems kind of odd and out of place, like in relation to this whole talk we've been having this morning. Um, but actually, it's, it's this um, kind of evaluation tool of our heart and where we're finding our identity exposes where our desires are actually at. He says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Because remember... The way we relate to others exposes so much about what we truly desire. It exposes so much about where our identity lies, where we're finding our identity. Think about it. Malice is the base anger because we don't get what we want. And it's lashing out in anger towards others because there's something we desire and are finding our identity in that we aren't receiving. Deceit and hypocrisy are are trying to, it's image control, right? Like it's lying because we want others to, to, to have this perspective about who we are. We want people to, 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 to see in us a certain kind of identity. And so we lie and we become hypocrites in order to, to people please because we want the affirmation of others. We, we've got our identity set in the wrong place. And so we do these things to people. And, we, and there's envy, Right? We, we long for material things or for achievement of others. Um, we see those things and we want what they have. And once again, it's because we're finding our identity in something other than being God's people. And we slander. We slander others. We belittle others because we, we want to feel justified. We want to feel bigger and better than them. All right? Because that may, that's, that's where we're finding our identity is how am I comparing to other people? rather than the secure identity that Jesus gives us in him, that you are beloved and chosen by God, and it, like, it doesn't matter how you stack up and rank on social media. And so the way we treat others is, is really this like, barometer for, for where we're finding our identity, because it exposes what we're really desiring. We've got to repent of those things. We've got to turn from people-pleasing and self-justification, from materialism. We've got to repent from rooting our identity in other things other than being God's people. And then we have to choose not to feed those desires, not to feed those identities. We've got to ask ourselves, what gets in the way of me finding my identity as God's people and who I truly am in, in Jesus? Well, it may be social media, and, it can, and social media can feed these things in all kinds of ways. It's the comparison game of, you know, I want to achieve more than others. It's the, you know, the Instagram game, like the, um, you know, seeing what other people have and, and wanting that, whether it's beauty or it's, it's clothes or it's, you know, the, um, the kids that never seem to um, get angry or, uh, you know, throw a fit. 
Like social media can play into so much of that. So, but it's not just social media, it's entertainment, it's certain environments we walk in, and it's not that we have to eliminate those things necessarily, though for some that may be the best route for a time, but it's that when we're pursuing those things, when we're doing those things, that we would remember our true identity, that we would go in rem- speaking the truth of the gospel to ourselves, that I'm a beloved child of God. That God loves all of the people that I see on social media just as much as he loves me. They're created in his image. And I need to love and respect them. I need to not objectify them. And so it affects then, when we're rooting our identity as we're going into certain environments or engaging with social media or engaging with certain entertainment, it roots our identity back in Jesus and allows us then to not have our desires swing to all these other things. And so that's kind of the, um, it's the one side of the, the repentance and, um, and, and, and where we're needing to turn to. But we've also, like, how, what do, how do we remember then the good news of the gospel? How do, we, how do we steadily cultivate the palate and remember who we are in Christ on a regular basis? Because when we live out in, in the everyday nature of this world, like, the world is throwing all kinds of identities that it wants us to latch onto. And that's why we as God's people need to live in this rhythm of gathering and scattering, of gathering as God's people on Sunday and scattering still connected with God's people throughout the week. That we don't just live this Christian life when we walk in here on a Sunday morning expecting that it's going to help us live out that identity all throughout the week without any touch point with one another or with Jesus and his word throughout the rest of the week. It's got to be both and. Both the Sunday thing and a Monday through Saturday thing. We've got to taste Jesus in his word. Taste the goodness of God in his word. And we do that when we hear the sermon preached, when we take communion here in a few moments, when we sing songs about, that are filled with truth about Jesus, when we greet one another, that we would share encouraging words, even scripture with one another. That, that, so we taste Jesus in his words with one another as we gather. But then we need to be doing that throughout the week by engaging with community groups so that we would live life together, so that so we would have accountability and, and reminding one another as we go through the ups and downs of the week of, of where we're really rooted. Not in the things of the world, not in the messages of the world about who we are, but in this word, the imperishable, undefiled, unfading word of God. And so my challenge for all of us this morning is that you would find one aspect of where your identity is being shifted off of who you are in Christ. And you would take a step to re- repent of that and course correct. And then that you would find one way that you would cultivate your palate for Jesus. One way to put something off and one way to put something on. All right, and so, so putting that on may, may look like um, you know, starting to engage a community group. It may look like um, starting to have regular daily time in the Word on your own. It may look like um, picking up Disciple Script, which was um, released a few weeks ago here. Um, it's about, these, about the regular disciplines in the life of the church in which we do simply taste the goodness of Jesus. So I just challenge you to think through what's one way you need to cleanse your palate and what's one way you need to cultivate your palate. Church, our mission here at Anthem is that people would know, love, and obey Jesus. And there are plenty of religious, churchy people who know and obey Jesus. They know lots of things, and they obey lots of rules, right? 
but growing up into our salvation and experiencing the abundant life that Jesus intends for us requires loving him and longing for him. A lot of us are probably familiar with 1 Corinthians 13. It's the, the, the love chapter, right? And at the beginning, it, it talks about, you know, if you know all these things, or if you do all of these things, like you give all of your wealth away for the poor, if you do all the right things and you know all the right things, and it's, but you don't have love, you have nothing. And so if we know all the right things about Jesus and we do all the right things as church people, but we don't love Jesus and we're not growing in our love for Jesus, then, then our identity is rooted in the wrong things and we're not going to be growing up into the fullness of salvation and the abundant life that Jesus offers us in that salvation. And so, church, we must embrace our life-giving identity in Jesus and in light of that, direct our desires toward him. It's not something that will happen overnight. It's a process that has its ups and downs. But remember the good news, as John Bunyan put it so well. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for the good news of the gospel. God, we thank you for the, just the, the sweetness of Jesus. God, his truth and his grace, his mercy and his justice, God, that you showed your love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You chose us, you rescued us, you saved us, you, you brought us into your family, even though we ran from being a part of your family. God, we thank you for pursuing us and we pray, God, that you would help us to root our identity in Jesus. And that from that, we would direct our identities, or we would direct our desires to Jesus. I more and more appreciate your goodness and your grace every day of our lives. So that when we scatter from this place, that we would be, that we would be people that live honorable lives before the world, that live lives of love and grace and truth, that people would come to know you and glorify you as well, and would step into being a part of your people. Thank you for Jesus. And we pray that the rest of our time this morning would just be a time of, of worshiping and, and just feasting upon you. And I pray this in his name.